we have networks, we have private actors, we have tech companies. So that is a big indeterminacy in terms of law and, and politics and it's shifting uh, our ways of um, living together. And on the other hand, um, as I said, um, there's climate change, there are very material um, changes, there's air pollution. So I think what we have to do is to create different concepts and really ask communities that experience um, injustices, how they address it, and try to find legal systems that are not only top-down, but have just a very different way of operating. And their digital technologies uh, can also help. Hello and welcome to the Culture and Technology Podcast. My name is Severin Matusek. So, I don't know about you, but to me, law and justice are topics that I'm no expert at. It makes sense that we shouldn't cross a red light on the street because it can put others in danger, or ourselves. So the way I understand law is that laws exist to regulate how we as a society live together. But how does law respond to the evolution of our planet? Climate change is rapidly advancing and changing our lived reality. To give you an example, the fundamentals for life on Earth, such as clean air and clean water, are no longer given to billions of people. Who has the right to breathe? How do we detect and define injustices? What role does law play in the way we interact with each other and treat our planet? I invited an expert on these topics to explore these questions with us. Daniela Gandorfer is a legal and media theorist and co-director of Logische Fantasie Lab, a research collective focusing on the intersection of justice, climate change, and advancing digitalization. Welcome, Daniela. So how did you get into law? This is quite funny because in hindsight, uh, I realized um, I'm synesthetic. Um, so synesthesia is described as a, a neuropsychological phenomenon where the linking of senses work differently. So for me, um, the linking and sense-making was always very physical and connected with the world. And um, already in school and later at university, uh, I realized that the knowledge production systems and how we make sense is very representational and abstract. Um, and I got very interested in the fact that um, something like words and language have a lot of power. So I started studying literature to understand, first of all, where the power comes from, but then also how people in history deal with that fact. And when they wanted to communicate that, they had to do it through writing for a large part of um, of a knowledge production history. So um, in a way, I have been interested in literature, not so much for the sake of reading literature, even though of course I did, um, but more to see how people try to break out of, of language and make it resonate and material and more central in a way. Then of course, law is really the intensification of such a representational system because suddenly the words have a lot of power to kill or to protect, um, to let live or to render a criminal. So in a way, all of that, the literature and the law is very much related to questions of how we sense and make sense in the world and what does it mean for the livability um, of us human and non-human beings. So 
After studying comparative literature, you then went on to really focus on law and lawmaking and developed a whole theory about how law must essentially become less abstract and more respond to matter. I'm just trying to put it out in layman's terms. Can you tell us a little bit about how you developed the theory and what the goal of the theory is? I mean, I started I started studying law in Vienna. Uh, I didn't finish because I went to the U.S. Uh, and I have always been publishing on on legal theory in a way. And there were two things that um, really interested me. Um, and first was, um, can we think of a legal system that is in touch with the physical world? and how things materialize. Um, and to give you an example why this is really important, if you think about EU asylum regulations, uh, the fact that they are what they are and the language is what it is, has a lot to do with the materiality of the ocean or the fact that um, human body can only swim um, so long before um, it drowns or the lungs fill with uh, water. Um, but that is not considered as being part of the law. So what happens is, and that's true for the Western legal systems in general, um, the power of these systems come from the claim that they are abstract uh, and detached from the world and it allows them to regulate the world without being held responsible. So to me, um, what happens is that the injustices that are very material cannot really be addressed. We have no means. We have to deal with words and see whether or not uh, the words apply. So um, these are questions of ethics and justice, um, which is why I'm interested in how to see if legal systems can work differently. And the other point to that is that, of course, our legal thinking has a long history. It comes from scientific ideas, it comes from philosophical ideas, and our legal concepts are built on, you know, uh, René Descartes and the mind and matter separation. They are built on Newton and his ideas of space and force and um, time, which have been proven to be not as correct as we thought. So we have quantum physics that works very differently. And I wonder in my book also um, and in my work, if we could imagine legal systems differently so that we understand that we are entangled, that we are not individuals, that we have to care for each other, that we can structure societies maybe differently. So those, uh, this was my work and uh, this is my interest. And it has a lot to do with climate change and that we cannot address that uh, easily with some legal forms and some words and cases. I mean, it's important to also try to do that, but I think we need different ways of addressing uh, the fact that we need to learn to live uh, on on a shared planet uh, that is very material. I have lots of questions now. I mean, this was super, I think, a very good explanation. Um, our law system, I think what you mentioned, how it is abstract and how it stems from these philosophical ideas ranging from Descartes to Newton, this is a very Western point of view on law, right? So are there any other examples in different societies, different cultures where law is practiced fundamentally different and maybe more related to matter? Yes. Um, so there has been in the last decades, uh, a lot of important work has come out, legal uh, work also on indigenous philosophies uh, all over the world, um, because um, they are all different, of course, but many share the idea that things are entangled and that we are part of a bigger environment and ecosystem. So a lot of interesting concepts come from there. But then also there's a revival of um, psychedelics, for example. 
which has to do a lot with for medical reasons, but also these are means to imagine differently. And they have been regulated uh, how we can live together, how we feel differently, how we sense differently. So I think there's a lot uh, that existed that has been uh, suppressed and regulated by Western systems and their political systems and their philosophies. So I think we can learn a lot. And the most important thing is that we collaborate and learn to think uh, together because neither climate change nor political binary systems can be addressed by some individuals that are very, very intelligent or some um, committees that are very experienced. I think that's a collaborative uh, endeavor. What is your proposal of how law can change practically? Does it mean that more people in a large consensus of society have to become aware of how these systems could be different and thereby vote for politicians and vote for different um, uh, proposals of lawmaking? Or is there a different change needed? Like, what, what, what do you think actually needs to happen? Yeah, that is, of course, a very difficult question. So together with colleagues, uh, founded an NGO that's called the Logische Fantasie Lab, and it tries to address uh, the questions that you raise and the issues that we have that what I said, the abstraction and the representationalism that is really enforced through new digital technologies, um, AI, machine learning, but also especially blockchain. And what they are doing is they really re reconfigure how political organization works. You know, um, states uh, do not have the exclusive power anymore. We have networks, we have private actors, we have tech companies. So that is a, is a big indeterminacy in terms of law and, and politics, and it's shifting uh, our ways of um, living together. And on the other hand, um, as I said, um, there's climate change, there are very material um, changes, there's air pollution, um, so I think what we have to do is to create different concepts and really ask communities uh, that experience um, injustices, um, how they address it and try to find legal systems that are not um, only top down, but have just a very different way of operating. And their digital technologies uh, can also help. Maybe that's also a very abstract way of answering a very concrete question. So let me give you an example. <laughs> Um, we're working on uh, a right to breathe. There's work being done right now on a right to breathe clean air. What we are trying to do is we're trying to see how the many, many different breathing injustices, think about COVID, think about air pollution, uh, but also many, many other um, phenomena that are simply not comparable. How can we find a legal concept that can address them all. And it's not just issued by state, but it's a collaborative um, effort. So that's one of the things where we try to use digital technologies, where we try to use uh, work collaboratively to experiment, experiment with what these legal systems could do. That's not a question that we can answer or will be able to answer soon, but it's something that we really have to do if we consider who is now creating um, the new concepts. I find it very interesting because, I mean, I try to express it in my own words of how I how I see it. Like, I think we also had on a podcast in our last season, uh, someone, uh, Francesca Priya, who is part of like, I, I would say, a leftist thinker, uh, European um, technology thinker. 
group um, that actually proposes very much that the state needs to regain more power again in regulating technology. Because what we've seen over the last few decades is that technology, big tech, Facebook, Amazon, Google, etc., have gained tremendous power over our lives, over the way we make decisions, over the technologies we use. And the state and lawmaking has been rather slow to regulate these. Um, and on the other hand, I think you also mentioned crypto technologies and networks and communities. We have this new wave of people building technology infrastructure in Web3 and with crypto, where there's a lot of thinking about governance, lawmaking, how we govern ourselves, how we govern networks. And um, I feel like there are these two different uh, ends of the horizon where I I would say I very much appreciate a larger group of people who build technology nowadays think about these topics. But if you're critical about it, you can also say, well, we will end up with the same thing that we ended up today, that a small few elite of technologies basically govern a large part of like how we live our lives digitally and, and offline as well. So where where is your standpoint? Is it somewhere in between, like both state and communities have to work together? Or is it more like on the technology side? What do you think? Yeah, thank you for that question. I think that helps also elaborate on that more. So where we see ourselves also with the Logische Fantasy Lab is between these stances, because everything you said and was said in that really good podcast also um, are, of course, true. There are these dangers. Um, but the question of regulation is one way of addressing what's happening in frontier spaces where the future is indeterminate, where a lot is happening, where a lot of violence is possible and potential for new forms are possible. We are less interested in the question of regulation. I think many important people are trying to think about that. But um, aside from that conversation, a lot is happening in these spaces. Um, and for us, it's important to try to get in there to open it up, these things like blockchain technology or these technologies are not accessible for a majority of people. So what is happening is, um, for, for example, there are ideas about startup societies where you have societies with technologies that do not obey the borders or our concept of sovereignty or our states. Um, there are ideas of privatizing governance services from lawmaking to um, healthcare to police to military. And the idea here is that the uh, citizen becomes a customer. And those ideas come from, you know, very powerful people like Patrick Friedman or Peter Thiel. So the question of regulation is important. But at the same time, I also think we have to get into these spaces and think ethically about what can we do? what, ca How can we think that differently so we have a say in what is happening. So that is to say, we are neither a public um, entity, nor are we a for-profit private entity. It gives us a good space in rethinking ethically what is doable with technologies and what is doable with future forms of normativity. So would you say that there might be a future where the state simply doesn't have a monopoly on lawmaking anymore? Like there are more networks, communities, startup societies that have their own philosophy and ethics of lawmaking and the citizen or the individual becomes more of a customer who can choose 
And so the state is actually challenged because until now it had a monopoly and it could do, you know, whatever it wanted, still based on democratic processes in most parts of the world. But yeah, do you think that's going to be the future where there's just simply more choice and more diversity in terms of like philosophical concepts of lawmaking and of living in a way? Um, yes, I think these are concepts that are really backed by strong capital and access to technology. And this is one way of, of what could happen. And of course, states are not easily replaceable. But these are entangled things, like when, you know, Elon Musk and SpaceX works with NASA, or when crypto um, currencies get integrated in other currency systems. It's not that one would replace the other. But I think that power is structured so differently through data and through the digitalization that eventually our concepts will not hold. Sovereignty, borders, these things are really hard to keep in place, which is why the EU has blockchain um, um, projects and which is why other countries, um, not that the EU is a country, but other countries have uh, and political organizations have these ideas. And that's why I am not in favor of that development. I think there's much more possible in terms of justice and social collaborations than that. But if we want to change the imaginary, we have to get in there and try to change it together in the most inclusive way, I think. When it comes to a future where I believe digital technologies will become more and more um, important and impactful in our lives. And let's say the metaverse as a digital environment in which we interact with each other. Who has the power in the end over the matter? The reason why we have these uh, laws regarding asylum and regulation is also because, you know, the real matter in geography is owned by nation states and divided between nation states. Whereas now we have this whole digital infrastructure called the metaverse or you know, the internet in some way, the evolution of the internet, that effectively doesn't belong to a state anymore. So how do you think about power structures in the physical and digital world related to whatever we might call matter? Yeah, I think that um, if you reframe it a little bit or rephrase it, um, the question of matter, and I've worked um, with Karen Barat, who is a philosopher and quantum physicist, so I'm very informed by their work also. But that question can be asked as a question of what can come to matter, materialize, and what it's excluded from mattering. And that includes the the question of property, which is such a big one, especially in the Western idea. But it also has to do with value. And what we see, if we go back to blockchain, for example, value has become very important again in an economic sense. And where the question through tokenization, for example, is not just, um, you know, what has a value in terms of, unfortunately, price mechanism and demand, but also um, what can we tokenize? What can be made into a property model? Can we tokenize a breath? Can we sell a breath? Can we make money of photosynthesis? what can be represented and representable in such an economy and an exchangeable. Uh, I think in that way, it's just a way of rephrasing what you said. And I think as you put it, who owns matter or who rules or has power over matter really is uh, the question. And if we could think, and going back to the idea of matter and quantum phys uh, physics, if we try to think differently, so law is not just about subjects and objects and their contractual relation 
which is something that right now, unfortunately, many tokenization models do, or if we think uh, a different model, not property, is there another way of thinking about the world and how we relate and how we could make it more sustainable? I'd like to talk about more specifically about climate change then in that matter. Because climate change is this still this this weird thing, I think, that as a whole humanity can't really deal with, right? Somehow, you know, we know about it for, for ages. Um, we experience it more and more ourselves, but still we don't see actually much change happening from, from a regulation or from a lawmaking perspective. So what do you think, what would be a, the approaches that make us deal with climate change in a more effective way? Yeah, one of the things that I think we also learned through climate change, which was clear to other people in other regions of the world all along, I think, is that there are dimensions that we cannot think in terms of space and times and, and our ideas of causality, what relates to what and what happens and what does it mean in the future and what has happened in the past. So, um, and also going back to law, the idea that we could think in a universal way to how to approach such big issues from a detached place um, and to find models that work everywhere on the globe and even beyond. Um, I think this is impossible. And when we talk about our project of uh, creating a right to breathe, it tries to address that by saying the inability, the impossibility of breathing for for example, uh, an indigenous downwinder in New Mexico, this, this is a community or communities that live downwind of the Trinity test and suffer for generations uh, from radiation and respiratory illnesses and cancer. They can't be compared to um, the air conditions uh, and the inaccessibility of air filtration in daily India, for example. So our approach would be to work with a thousand different um, breathing injustices in regions, see what people are doing there, see what scientists, activists are doing there, and then try to address that. And at the same time, understanding also that these things are related. Uh, so in a way, this is a lot of work uh, and it doesn't allow an answer to your question, but I do think it's a way to have a more diverse and a more localized regional um, response to your question and does not fall into the trap of generalization, but at the same time realizes and recognizes that we are in this together, even though differently, as Rosie Padotti would say. So I think that that would be our approach. Going back to our idea of like what law is and, and how it must change, I, I think I have this idea maybe because I grew up in, in, in Western society um, that law is something that exists, that of course rules are changing and there's big books and lawyers and lawmakers and law enforcers in, in, in each society, but that I as an individual don't have much influence on law. Like and it's not up to me. I think we we are kind of trained that oh yeah, if, if something goes wrong, we call the police or we call a lawyer and they're gonna take care of it. So is that a problem in your sense when it comes to climate change, where maybe you know citizens and individuals should actually have put more responsibility on their shoulders in order to act, in order to make a change, so that we can actually um, um, yeah work with that challenge. 
Yeah, I think so. And I think that regulation is important uh, and states are very powerful and um, everything that we change um, really has effects on all sides. So I think I would not take that lightly, but I also think that I would agree to what you said or ask. I think that um, the question is not just how to regulate, but how to involve people, how to involve communities, environments even, to address um, the climate injustices. And I have to say the idea that the legal systems and the political systems are indeterminate and changing is scary. This is exciting for some people, but it's also very scary because even though the state is also historically a violent uh, institution, it's also an institution that grants rights. So all of that is a very, very... Uh, uh, indeterminate and partly dangerous place, but also one in which we have some agency and in which we should begin thinking about how to think together with citizens and non-citizens and communities and see how we can learn also from them and their knowledges of what's at stake. What's at stake with water? What's at stake with air pollution? What's at stake with heat? Uh, and all those things. Do you think that in this process the internet and the ongoing digitalization of society have a big impact. I'm thinking of an example of, you know, we just had two years of the pandemic and the coronavirus. And in some countries, like I think Denmark or some Scandinavian countries, the public was fairly compliant to the rules and regulations of the government. Whereas in other countries, Austria included, there was actually um, quite a big resistance building up of about 30, 35% of the population not wanting to be vaccine, vaccinated. And I think my analysis of this is that access to information, but also possibly misinformation, has dramatically increased over the last decade, obviously. So more people have the tools to inform themselves through alternative sources, which then creates alternative belief systems um, and uh, the erosion of trust in the state and trusting in different institutions, trusting in different individuals. So how would you say the internet and the information society, so to speak, has an influence on us as individuals becoming more responsible or um uh, becoming more involved in lawmaking in some sense? I think it has a huge impact also because communication across the world, wherever there is internet access, is possible. And I think what you also said about um, also conspiracy theories, it has to do with the indeterminacy. It has to do, as you say, with the fact that the trust in the state and the power of the state is waning, but also the... Um, being completely overwhelmed with the big phenomena such as climate change. And as we also referred to, the powerlessness when it comes to law, regulations or non-regulation. So um, what happens, to go back to what was said before, is um, I think that there is a more susceptibility to not only misinformation, which is a huge problem, but also to those theories and those suggestions that, that promise power. Now, that can be the the dictator uh, uh, and leader model, like with Trump and others, but that could also be the more tech, U.S. tech libertarian version of why don't we, why don't you uh, just found a state? Now it's possible with your ideologies, with your ideas. You don't have to deal with any other belief systems. So I think um, not addressing that. Um, through regulation, but also through education, through more funding for schools, more funding for um, universities, more funding for public initiatives. 
I think this will create um, dualisms and binaries that will tend to lean towards extremes, um, which again, this is why it's so important to come up with alternatives, as many as possible. Uh, it's not only about right or wrong, but it's about an ethics and creating a multiplicity of future models. Um, so we don't um, uh, fall into totalitarian, digital authoritarian states um, or private actors, but also not into this hardcore individualist, self-interest informed models of it's the individual and you can whatever you want. Uh, you can do whatever you want. Are there any examples of, of some nation states that or some countries or some cultures, networks, communities that already do this in an interesting way? Is this already happening or are we all still experimenting and dreaming about it? Well, what is happening, for example, is that um, this extra jurisdictions or this idea of startup societies, that is kind of happening um, with seasteading, but also in Honduras, uh, there has been also in the US, in Nevada, there was this suggestion of innovation zones um, by a blockchain company where the idea was that if you buy a certain amount of land and invest a certain huge amount of money, you can have a little sovereign um city blockchain city where you can have your own courts and your own um your own school system so that's the one side um i think in the blockchain space there are interesting very very interesting people there are interesting ideas about about blockchain economies that do it um, do address climate change, they do address the CO2 emissions, they try to build community empowering systems of, you know, not just currencies, cryptocurrencies, but other value systems. So I think many, many people are working on that. But my sense is that in the public conversation, it's more centered on regulation than on all the other um, possibilities. Yeah, maybe this is the, the final question I have because I, I think, yeah, in the public discourse, blockchain and crypto technology have somehow gained this dubious reputation where, of course, some super believe in it, but actually also a large majority thinks it's scamming, it's financial instruments only, it's only going to make a few more people more rich and, and the less are going to lose a lot of money. But I liked how you described it that I think what's currently being known as crypto, you know, which is the financialization of a lot of things and NFTs and the art market and so on, is only a very tiny fraction of what might be possible with blockchains. So can you give us a little outlook on why you think blockchain technology could open up some of these more interesting spaces for the future? Yes, and, and for this future outlook, I think it's it's worth uh, emphasizing again the historicity and the history of, of these technologies and phenomena. Um, the first cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and the underlying blockchain, which was the first one, that um, that is a U.S. American project, and the idea really was... Um, um, financial transactions without intermediary, intermediaries, no state, no government, no banks. Um, and that, that's the background. Um, but then there have been many other um, projects. The Ethereum project even is a different one. Um, not that it's not about financial speculation, but they're the idea of politics and law were there from the beginning, like uh, decentralized autonomous organizations, for example, that, you know, replace, um, uh, corporate entities, like this would be uh, a corporation that runs on a software 
or um, smart contracts, which underlie NFTs. These are also political and governmental tools. So I think what it po what is possible has to be seen in relation to that history too. And there I can only refer to the many, many blockchain ecologies uh, that are built. Uh, I think that for me and for Lofi personally, what it enabled is thinking decentralized. Uh, can power be distributed? Can it be democratized? It really opened up possibilities in thinking and doing that were not there before uh, because we couldn't communicate that way. We couldn't create this um, alternative, not just currency systems, but value system. Now the question is only who will be able to participate, who will have access, who will be educated, who has access to the technologies. And that will determine what kind of values will come with all the political and all the economic and all the uh, legal systems that will be built. The Culture and Technology Podcast is produced by the Vienna Business Agency. The Vienna Business Agency supports businesses, the economy, and the city to develop Vienna's creative industries further.